morning, everyone. Well, it was 32 years ago this Sunday that I preached my first sermon as a 16-year-old Pentecostal preacher. It was awesome. <laughs> yes. Would, would y'all like just one day for me to bring one of my 18-year-old revival sermons and just let y'all hear it one day? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I was still going through puberty, but I preached and screamed so much when I was preaching as a Pentecostal preacher, I had a raspy voice, so I sounded like this pubescent kid that smoked three-pack of non-filter camel every day with a real southern twang. It was awesome. Um, that was 32 years ago. 13 years ago, another monumental thing happened on this Sunday. We started Grace Point. Uh, it was in a little elementary school over on Concord called Lipscomb. And we started, and uh, it's been 13 amazing years. When we started the church, I had inside of me, uh, I had a desire to do what I, I thought would be a, an experiment. And the experiment, in essence, was to provide, just as clearly as I can say it, to provide a way out of fear-based religion. I personally believe then, and I believe now, one of the most detrimental things, one of the most detrimental ideological viruses amongst humans is a fear-based view of God. I don't know how else to say it, but I, I believe that deeply. Um, and I believe that the Christian church in its first 2,000 years was one of the largest proponents of a fear-based view of God. I also believed inherent within Christianity was the possibility of maturity, evolution, and growth that would move us beyond that. And so I was very committed to the Christian faith, still am, but was also very committed to do something a la Harriet Tubman. Instead of moving on to the more liberal, progressive, whatever you want to call it, the ilk of Christianity that I was, because I was, I was far removed from my evangelical roots internally. But instead of moving on, I, I thought, who better to conduct an underground railroad of sorts to allow people a way out than someone who understands that language, understands that mindset. And so, um, Looking back, it, it probably was presumptuous, but I still had a bit of evangelicalism in me because evangelicalism is all about converting people. So now I was on the other side and I was ready to convert people to my way of thinking. Have you ever noticed that legalism is not conservative or liberal? Legalism is people ought to see it my way and they're idiots if they don't. And now that I move in a more uh, left world in some regards, um, I find just as much Phariseeism and legalism there. We're right and everybody else is stupid. Um, and we need to convert them. So I, I, I don't like that attitude, but in that day I thought that's what I was going to do. So I thought I would do it, um, I thought I would do it by building a bridge and bridging to that community with language and style and yet continually, not surreptitiously, but semi-covertly saying things that would provoke them just far. I would take them right to the point where they turn purple and then back off and stretch them. And, and ultimately, the goal was to change them. 
interestingly, many of them did not ask to be changed. And when one adult presumes the responsibility of changing another adult, I think we have problems. But that's being evangelical. That's, you know, converting people. You know, I, I know you won't enjoy being converted, but it's for your good. Trust me. <laughs> right? So I set out on that journey. We set out on that journey. And four years ago, we had a congregation of 2,000 members, seven to 800 people on Sunday. And it was just rocking along really smoothly. And in the spring of 2012, just to give you a little history, all of a sudden, we began struggling. And we began struggling, not just in our leadership, but in the congregation. Because we, we had a very intimate community, just like we do now. People loved one another. A lot of you were here then. But these people were singing in the choir together, leading worship together, serving communion together, doing groups together and book clubs together. And it began to be apparent that we had a wide berth of etiologies in our congregation. We had people who were extremely conservative slash fundamentalist in their theology. And we had people who were incredibly open and liberal in th their theology. We had Unitarians and fundamentalist Baptists. And there were no bad people. They were all just the most wonderful people. And they were trying to do intimate life together. And we began to clash. And I had just personally six or eight of those clashes come to me looking for me to provide a verdict because the argument always was well, well Grace Point believes and the other group would say or the other person would say what Grace Point are you talking about and then it would always come down to what well, Pastor Stan says and, and the other one would say well that's not what I heard him say and people were I was saying things in such a way that they could be interpreted however you know it was it was it wasn't intended to be political but there is always politics politics is simply the influence of people forget the pejorative term politics politics is the influence of people and there is a fine line between diplomacy and hypocrisy and we all try to walk it at times don't we well we ended up realizing that we had a bit of a challenge because we had these groups and so we really did an assessment of the church and what we came to the conclusion of we had three distinct groups and all three of them plus or minus 20 or 30 people it was about 700 700 and 700 I mean we were equally tripart divided and on the one hand you had the incredibly progressive open-minded uh, you know Christian thought on the other hand you had the traditional conservative Christian thought and then we had a group in the middle and this was a group that we took care of really well and we still do and a lot of you are in that group it was the deconstructed middle that didn't know where they were they didn't know which side of the fence they dwelt on they were deconstructed and so so here's what you have you have this group in the middle that's deconstructed and they could theoretically attach to either of the other two groups right because most of them were coming from one group and very well may have been moving to the other group, so they had connection to both groups. 
and what you've learned within, you know, humane fellowships, and a Christian fellowship is a humane fellowship, what you learn is that we do have the capacity as humans to tolerate and to accept one another and our differences. But in a tight, intimate community, tolerance can only go so far, especially when you're talking about matters of faith that may have consequence into eternity. You know, how much we could tolerate was, was really at issue here. But as long, what you found, what we've all found, is as long as two groups can share a border, they can compromise, they can tolerate, because they're contiguous. They, they, come to the, they come from different sides of the fence, but at least they can lean across and see your side because they touch. And the group, that deconstructed moderate group, perhaps in the middle, they could connect to either group, but those two groups on the outside, remember this, Brian and Kelly, the two groups on the outside, they didn't share a border. They were miles apart, and they were clashing, not as friends. I mean, these were people who were dear friends and still are, but ideologically. And to do something like a church, there has to be some ideological sameness because this is all about mission and vision and doing something together. So we, we, we said that, uh, you know, we're going to we're gonna have to do something. We're going to have to catalyze this and figure out who we are and what we want to do. And it was very clear that we were a church... Uh, you know, uh, the bulk of the leadership, we were a church that was headed in a very um, more progressive, open theological position, and we always wanted here in the Bible Belt to be a church that was good for deconstructed people. So there was this period of grief where we looked and said, well, there's 700 members of our congregation that probably are going to be better served in another fellowship. Now, that's easy to say, but it's hard to do when your lives are intertwined with them and they're some of your best friends. And the people who were here then are shaking their head at me. They remember the deep grief of, of that. So we decided, you know, we've got to catalyze this. I'm going to have to be more, I'm going to have to be more forthcoming in my preaching. What are we going to do? And about that time, uh, that's when the, uh, that's when Westboro Baptist decided to picket us. And we really did not enter into the LGBT inclusion conversation from a social, you know, civil rights, deep sense of conviction that that's our calling. We entered into it because it gave us opportunity. That, that subject gave us opportunity to explicate and make clear that we were a progressive-minded church. And what better subject to take than a subject that's pressing at contemporarily so we took that subject and we spent a few years delving into that subject not just to show how we felt about that subject and to have conversation but to show how we treat scripture to show how we view God it really wasn't about you know homosexuality or heterosexuality or sexuality or humanity it really was about how we viewed God um, two years ago we were coming to the end of that clarifying. And as we were coming to the end of that clarifying, it was August, it was this week in August, two years ago, and I wrote this letter to the church. And a lot has happened in these last two years. Dear church family, as Grace Point moves in earnest into our second decade as a congregation, the sense that our identity, vision, and mission are coming into full and mature shape is palpable. 
Truly our first decade together has been a blessed experience serving the journey of hundreds and hundreds of people. To that end, the leaders of our church feel deeply grateful that God has obviously and graciously mixed all of our steps and missteps into a good that could only be described as divinely fashioned. As I contemplate with our leaders the present hour as well as the future of our fair church, I'm reminded of a story from the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures. The children of Israel had come to the end of their famed 40-year journey or wandering in the wilderness, and there under the leadership of Moses, they sensed that a change was coming. They sensed that their ultimate calling or destiny was on the verge of unfolding, and they were right. Do you guys, Rich, do you have that verse... Let's look at that verse. Deuteronomy second chapter tells the story. So I sent this story out to the church. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. As the Lord had told me, Moses said. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. That little verse of scripture covers 38 years of the wilderness wandering. You talk about synopsizing. That's 38 years of wilderness wandering that he just spoke to. And Mount Seir was kind of this pivotal geographical, topographical piece there in Goshen. And he said, so we had been wandering for 38 years. The previous books told that whole story. And now he uh, captures it in those uh, two little, ver or one verse. Then the Lord said to me, watch this. You have been traveling. So think about our church two years ago. You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward. And command the people. You have been on this journey circling this same mountain. It's time to turn northward. It's time to go to your destiny. Command the people. You are about to pass through. And this was so pivotal. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau. Those who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you. As you move, what an archetype this text is. As you finally separate and move to what you believe is your destiny, you will pass through the territory of your brothers and sisters. And listen, they will not understand. After a, with my daughter yesterday, run into someone Actually, this was a few weeks ago. We saw them again yesterday, and it brought it to her mind. A few weeks ago, someone pulled up beside me. Are you Pastor Stan? I used to say, yes, I am. Now I say, mm-hmm. <laughs> this big old guy says, you Pastor Stan? I said, yeah. He said, I used to come to your church. I said, oh, great, good to see you. He said, not really, and he drove off. And I, and I remember him. So the, the, the tacky thing of that is my daughter was sitting beside me. You know, wh why? <laughs> we saw him yesterday. And I stared at him. And I thought bad thoughts. And then I thought about this whole deal that we're trying to do. My daughter saw him. This morning she said, Dad, you know what you should tell people? She's out of the blue. 
She said, you know what you should, I didn't, Paula didn't know it was on her mind. She was thinking about him. You know what you ought to tell people? You ought to tell people, I'm doing my best to talk about God the way I think about God. If you don't think about God that way, can't we be friends? I thought that was such a better response, Steve, to me wanting to go get in a fight. Anyway. <laughs> Besides that, he's a big old boy. Hold on. Um, I think I could have taken him, though. But anyway. <laughs> the, no. But when I, she said that, it broke my heart, and I thought about this text. You're going to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau. They will be afraid of you. And you can play into that. You can buy into that. But be very careful. Watch this. Don't contend with them. Don't fight with them. 38 years. 38 years ago, you were 11 days journey from Kadesh Barnea. 38 years ago, you were coming out of Egypt. You were going to the promised land. You towed the precipice of that journey, and it was 11 days. And you turned 11 days into 38 years. Fear, procrastination. You, you name the reasons you turned an 11-day journey into 38 years. But God said, you have encompassed this long enough. Turn northward. It's time to go to the place of your destiny. This is the beauty of Scripture. It provides age... It doesn't give us history. It provides us age-old archetypes that are our reality. That's a lot better than history. It's truth. Don't contend. Listen, your brothers... Who are your brothers? These are... These are not fellow Israelites. You want inclusion? God speaks through Moses and said the descendants of Esau. That's not Israel. That's a whole different group of people. That, that, that's not even a part of your faith system. But they're your brothers. They're human beings. They're going to be afraid of you. They're not going to understand your journey. Your destiny is not their destiny. I got another deal with them. This is your deal. Don't impose it upon them. They're going to be afraid of you. They're probably even going to pull up beside you and say things that hurt you. But whatever you do, don't be baited. You're on your way to Canaan. You're on your way to your destiny. It's not theirs. It's yours. Don't contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. Not so much as the sole of the foot to tread on because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You know what? As you're leaving Mount Seir to go to your place, you don't have to condemn everybody who's staying there. This is their possession. In this grand and glorious spiritual economy, the last thing you want to do is move from a condemning group to the other side 
and still be a condemning group. This is their property. This is their journey. Let them have it. You don't want them condemning you? Don't condemn them. Can you believe I gave them this property that I want you to leave? Can you believe that they can still live life here just fine? Verse 6. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat. You can eat food from these people that you're now separating from and leaving. It won't hurt you. It's not poison. There's still good stuff to be had there. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. Verse 7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you've lacked nothing. Whew, that's a relief. Just about the time you think that we're going to have to look at this 38-year process and say it was all wasted. Just about the time we're going to have to look and say we've procrastinated, we've made wrong decisions, we've been unfaithful. 38 years ago, we should have made a decision to go straight to Canaan. We couldn't do it. We had a lot of Egypt still inside of us. We had a lot of stuff to get through. We just weren't ready. And God says, I knew that, and I've been with you this entire time. As Richard Rohr says, everything belongs. In other words, nothing's wasted. God said, I've been with you the whole time. I continued the letter two years ago. There are several pieces of that story that seem remarkably resonant with Grace Point's story. The reassurance that God has been with them always through the highs and the lows is not the least of the similarities. Of particular note to me, though, was the clarion call of verse 3 that they had navigated the hill country long enough and it was now time for them to turn northward. This intentional shift in their journey would turn them in the direction of God's best for them. Actually, the serpentine route they had been on for the past four decades had in its own way been leading them to that best place, but now they were simply decisively making a move that would turn them down the proverbial home stretch. It was a catalyzing moment. 38 years they had been moving toward Canaan, but now, precipitously, catalyzed, the journey was about to move fast. It was just over two years ago at that time so four years ago now, that the pastors and elders of our church experienced a very similar sense of being directed to make a decisive shift. Like Moses and the leaders of Israel, we felt the divine hand gently but firmly turning us in the direction of what we believe to be God's ultimate heart for Grace Point. We indeed have felt our own turn northward. It is vital to note that this turning casts no aspersions on where we have been or the journey thus far. To the contrary, we have felt, as did Israel, God's affirmation of our steps from our earliest days, all the way our Savior has led us. This present turning, though critical and definitive, is only a part of that guidance we have cherished from our inception. Recently, Phyllis Tickle spoke to us regarding the fact that we are living in an epical season of history in which the Holy Spirit of God is generating significant and seismic shifts in the landscape of the church. She now has died, one of the most profound Christians to live among us in the last 100 years. 
I share Phyllis's sentiments on this matter. She noted that in prior epics, the church has consistently asked three central questions. Number one, what is humanity? What is the ultimate nature of humanity? Number two, wherein lies ultimate authority? And number three, how then shall we live? For the next three Sundays in a series aptly titled, Turn Ye Northward, I will address those three questions as I believe they are at the heart of Grace Point's past, present, and future direction. Many of you have felt this turning over the past couple of years. It certainly has had many effects within our church. Little did I know the effects it would have in the next 24 months at that time. I hope you will make every effort to attend the next three Sundays as we bring clarity to these exciting times. Turn ye northward as a congregation. Let's look together at the land that we're headed to. That was two years ago. The central question at that time as we walk through that series, the central question in the minds of every person was, what does it mean to turn northward? Where is this northward that we're going to? When you've been in Goshen for 38 years and there is that sense that it's time to turn and go to another place, the question was, okay, we're headed northward. Where's the destination? For them, it was Canaan. So the question that I was being asked at that time we were moving into a place of mystery, uncertainty. Control was being let go of. Clarity was so desperately longed for. Where is Canaan for us? Over the next three to four weeks, I would, I would like to reflect with you and answer that question. Where was Canaan? Where have we come to? Where did this northward turning journey bring us to? In this next few weeks, I'm going to address five distinctives of the land that we now live in. Five distinctives that separate us and differentiate us distinctly from the land of Goshen where we traveled around Mount Sierra. The first is inherent union. We no longer believe, we no longer teach. There are many beliefs in this place, but from a leadership perspective, if you want to know, this is not, the best way that I can look at this is I ask myself the question, what does Anna teach our children? We believe in inherent union, not inherent separation. We believe that human beings are born in the image of God and they are not born separated from God. And the journey of salvation is recognizing that we've always been safe. That is a major distinct difference from our brothers who live around Mount Sierra. We'll tease that out more. The second distinctive that we now hold that we did not hold then is radical inclusivity. We believe the table of Jesus is for all and there are no dogs who are left to eat crumbs at the base of that table. Radical inclusivity marks our congregation. There is much to discuss there. The third thing that we believe is we do not believe that the early church or first century thinkers were the archetypes. We believe the early church was the infant 
we believe in a progressive, continuing, unfolding revelation of the divine. We think it is a tragedy that in every discipline known to man, we are still accumulating wisdom and information. Why then have we tried to fix spiritual growth in a place two to 3,000 years ago? We believe that God is still speaking and revelation is continuing and in an accumulating wisdom we are growing in our understanding of the mystery of God and the mystery of life. We do not genuflect back to a creed made hundreds of years ago or a first century set of believers. We believe that they opened the right conversation but they did not give us a constitutional end. They were an invitational beginning. And we are a part of that process. That is a major distinction from the life in Mount Seir in Goshen. The fourth thing that we deeply value here is that the mind, I say it this way, we believe in the mind as friend. We believe that the rational mind, we believe science is our friend. We believe inquiry is our friend. I do not fear that the mind is the devil's playground and if it makes sense, it must be contrary to faith. We believe that the more science unfolds, science is not contradicting God, science is just revealing the way God did it. So we are not afraid of science and we do not believe that we should check our mind in at the door and come have a faith experience. We believe at the center of the faith experience is this good mind that God has given all of us. So the mind is friend. That's four. And the fifth is we have made a deep commitment to fully loving and being loved in this life. We believe eternal life is now. And we believe that it is a terrible distraction to put all of our focus and our spirituality on what happens to us after we biologically cease. Do we have a sense of afterlife? Yes, many of us do. I personally have a deep sense that life will continue and that the life that will continue will be meaningful and under the auspices of God's care. I hold the afterlife as a deep, deep mystery and I resonate with 1 John 3, 2 that it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But I do not believe the chief interest of God for all of us is that this life is a training ground and we have one practice run and then there is death and our eternal destinies either end up as eternal horrors or eternal splendors. I believe that the focus of God for us and our focus should be on this life, that eternal life is now. And the best thing we can do for the afterlife is embrace the mystery, accept the mystery, and pour ourselves into the gift that we now have, which is this world and this life, the place that God called good and if we live into that eternity now whatever happens to us after we die this will just parlay right over into that and it will all be wonderful we have a positive sense of the afterlife but it is not our chief focus God is here with us in the eternal now so we are not a by and by church that are huddled together in a fort, waving a white flag, just holding on for Jesus to come. Jesus has come, and we need to do something wonderful in this world today. In 
inherent union, radical inclusivity, progressive revelation, mind as friend, and a commitment to this world and this life. Those five things. If somebody would have asked me two years ago, Steve, where are we going? I could have speculated and projected. But after the two-year journey, I'm looking into the eyes of people. I'm looking into a group of people. I no longer have to say, this is what a handful of leaders believe. I'm looking at a group of people who share these values deeply. And it is time for us to do something beautifully together. Because do you know, people still don't understand what we're saying. We have not got the word out well yet. There are tens of thousands of people right here in the buckle of the Bible Belt that are looking for exactly what we're doing. And we are going to take the next month and we're just going to walk through these five tenets and we're going to understand the land we live in, the robust beauty of these truths. And we are going to commit ourselves in this place to love our brothers and sisters who live in Goshen and all around because that's what radical inclusivity does. We are not a contending people, we are a loving people and this is a beautiful gospel to believe. Can you say amen? amen. Now what I could do is take the next 15 minutes and talk about these some more but I think I'm just about done for today. How about let's go to lunch early? Is that good? Yeah. Tin Roof would be a wonderful place for us to sit around at lunch and talk about these things deeply. I'm going to head over there. I, I think a bunch of us are. So why don't I do something really different today, and that's cut my sermon short. <laughs> On the 32nd anniversary of my preaching, I'm going to do something good. I'm going to cut this thing short. <laughs> my... Uh, my, my, dad, my dad always told me a good sermon, son, is one with a real good ending and a real good beginning, and those two together as close as you can get them. <laughs> so let's come back the next few weeks. Don't miss. Let's be here, and let's get into this stuff, and let's talk about where Canaan is for us. Can you say amen? God bless you. Let's go to Tin Roof. See you.